Hello, everybody. So great to see you. I am like this all the time, Dr. Hernandez. I'm so happy with the panelists that we have here today um, to talk about the prophetic books, and in particular, the prophets. Who were the prophets? What did they care about? Are there prophets today? I mean, I think we want to take a contemporary turn, too, not just to talk about the past, but to talk about who's been a prophet in our lives, or does such a thing even exist? Were prophets confined to the biblical period? Are there prophets beyond the traditional boundaries of what we might think of as a prophet? How would that function? Um, before we get to introducing the panelists, though, I want to do a little bit of a recap of Monday's lecture. And I want to do this because our week has been a little odd. We had a snow day at George Fox University on Monday. And so, well, you know, the lecture, of course, is recorded and you can listen to it. But I want to make sure that everybody's kind of on the same page with just a couple of simple points about the prophets, okay? So point number one that we wanted to make is that prophets are people who do things and say things on behalf of God. And sometimes it's even very direct. They'll even speak in the first person on God's behalf as though God is speaking directly through the mouth of a prophet. But not just speaking, they're also actors. They also do things with their bodies. They also do things with their hands and they act things out with props and things like this. We also discussed the way that prophets are often related to power. In particular, when Israel gets a king, prophets are related to the king. Prophecy goes along with kingship in the Bible. Because in this worldview, which is a kind of a political and spiritual worldview, um, power needs to be checked. Deuteronomy 17 and 18 lay this out. There's a law of what the king should be like, and then right away, right on its heels, there's a law for what the prophet should be, and the priest, right alongside the king, keeping the king in check. And we see that played out in many different examples. We looked at David and Nathan, for example, how when King David does a horrible thing in 2 Samuel, the prophet Nathan is right there to tell him an incriminating story and have David self-incriminate, and then boom. So it's a very, it's a very um, sensitive position the prophet is in to be able to speak that kind of truth in the face of power. And then finally, I wanted to reemphasize that we talked about the prophet in a kind of dual role. On the one hand, the prophet can go to a community that is deep, deep in sin, deep in breaking the covenant, deep in problems, just problems that they can't even recognize. And the prophet comes into a situation like that and tells, tells the nation, you are in trouble. You are in a deep state of trouble and you don't even realize it. And so the prophet has to help the nation feel the disorientation that is really real, but which they don't yet see on the one hand. On the other hand, it's not all doom and gloom. The prophets can also encourage the nation by helping them in a time of crisis, often a time of war. We talked about the way that a prophet helped um, the kingdom of Judah in the south around Jerusalem during the Assyrian crisis. The Assyrians were a huge empire. And we talked about the way that a prophet Isaiah besides all the messages of doom and disorientation he wanted to put out, also was there in that famous chapter, Isaiah chapter seven, to tell the king, look, God's giving you a sign, it's all gonna be okay. So the prophet can encourage, but also discourage. There's a dual role and related to the king, okay? Those were kind of some of the main points. We had a lot more there too. I just wanted to make sure those kind of things were out on the table for everybody before we get started. But why delay any longer? I'm so happy that these panelists have come to be with us. Um, first, on my right here, Dr. Rebecca Hernandez is um, associate vice provost for, oh man, associate provost um, at the university. It's kind of like an associate vice president of the university type role. She's also our chief diversity officer at George Fox University and also the director of the Center for Peace and Justice. Her PhD is from Oregon State University and we're so happy to have you here, Dr. Hernandez. Thank you so much. Dr. Gary Tandy is chair of the English department here at George Fox University. His PhD is from the University of Tulsa. He studies and teaches British literature, he has a book on C.S. Lewis, 
Um, he also works as a technical writer, and so he's a writer, he's an English professor, he's a thinker, he works with pop culture and musical expression as well. Um, Dr. Tandy, so, so happy to have you here. And a returning guest whom you recognize, hopefully, uh, Dr. Anderson Campbell, who's a doctor of ministry, is from our own seminary here at George Fox University. He is my colleague in my department. He's also been a pastor, and so we're going to rely on Dr. Campbell to be our pastoral voice for the day among his many other roles. Dr. Campbell, welcome. Thanks for coming back into our wild environment here. It's wild, isn't it? It's crazy. This is a crazy group. Crazy group of people. <laughs> um, that's a joke. Everyone's like looking like a statue right now at me from the crowd. Um, how about this, how about this um, question first? I want to kind of keep on cultivating just basic ideas about, right. about the prophet. I know, I know you all dipped into the lecture, at least in part, if not in full. Was there anything from the lecture on Monday that you thought, ah, I, don't, I wouldn't quite put it that way, maybe you disagree, or something you think, yes, I really want to affirm that, or mm -hmm. a anything in that zone that you want to jump in and go for? Yeah, I'll start. Um, I, I, th I think that the two things that I would uh, affirm, one is the, the way in which one of the common threads of biblical prophets is that they speak truth to power, that like their job tends to be seeing the world the way God sees the world and then calling it out when the leaders of Israel are not leading in the way that God would have them lead. And then connected with that, it's just what a horrible job being a prophet was. <laughs> like, I don't think any of the biblical prophets were like, uh, I, I want to grow up and be a prophet one day. Most of them tend to resist that. Mm -hmm. And I think that, and maybe we can talk about this some, but I think that that's contrasted with maybe some of the contemporary views of what it means to be prophetic or to be a prophet today. Like I could make money off being a prophet uh, right. today. Or, or I'll I get famous or I'll yeah. have power or something like that. I'm going to put that on my feed. Yeah. Being prophetic right? and whatnot. Insta prophecy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hashtag prophetic. You know, like, I don't think that uh, that the biblical prophets, there's not much room for that. Like, a lot of them tried to run away, you know, or even like Amos, who maybe is my favorite of the prophets, so I'm glad that you all had to uh, read the book that has his name on it. You know, he doesn't even consider himself a prophet. He's like, I am a shepherd, and God told me to say these things, and I don't want to, and you're not even my country, but I can't not say these things. Mm. And that kind of burden, I think, uh, is maybe helpful when we start talking a little bit about uh, how do you determine if someone is being prophetic. You know, mm. this, this idea that you can't not say the thing that God is compelling you to say also tends to be something we see throughout mm. the biblical uh, literature. Yeah. yeah would, you would you consider Jonah a prophet? Well, yeah. And I, yeah, and I think... I think in the in the way that like Jonah like tries to run away from exactly. that narrative, and he doesn't like the message. That's the other thing that's interesting about Jonah, right? Yeah. Is he doesn't want to say what God's telling him to say. He doesn't disagree with it. He just doesn't want this particular group of people to get it. Because yeah. if they do get the message and repent, then they get redeemed, and these are people that he views as his enemies. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it's a really right. confusing. I thought that was pretty powerful when I was reading or listening to the lecture and thinking about. What is that really like when you have a message for people that you don't care for? And what does that mean? And right. how then do you obey God even in the midst of yeah. stuff you don't want to be saying that could give someone a benefit or bless them or redeem them? And you're like, no, you really should punish them. L I don't know if anyone feels that yeah, way. Yeah, let me recap because I think this is a point that, that goes along really well with, with, with what we want to talk about. Like we didn't read Jonah for this week. Jonah's a super famous story in case okay. you haven't read Jonah. Um, Jonah's asked yeah. to go be a prophet to the Assyrians. Do you remember the Assyrians mm -hmm. from the Monday lecture? Maybe, maybe not. They're a major empire. They were kind of like considered, you know, maybe like the Nazis of the ancient world. They were brutal. They had a horrible propaganda machine. They took over other people's countries. And God says to Jonah in this little book of Jonah, go and be a prophet to the Assyrians. 
ready, go. Tell them to repent. And Jonah runs away from God, famously gets swallowed by a giant fish, famously gets puked up on land. Yeah. Jonah does be the prophet, but the, 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 the thing that Dr. Hernandez brings up that I think is so intriguing, why did Jonah run away? Was he just like, I'm, a, you know, I'm afraid, I don't want to be, a no, he actually tells us in the book why he ran away. He's like, I hate the Assyrians, I was afraid that you would forgive them because I hate them. I think they're horrible and I wish you would destroy them. And if they don't have a prophet to help them repent, maybe you just will. And God's like, no, 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 go back. And so the book is kind of, it's comic in a way, but it's also deadly serious about what you would do as a prophet right. to deliver a message to people that you actually wanted to die, for example. Mm -hmm. So that's a weird one. I don't know. Yeah, that was, I, I, that's what I think about when I think about prophets. So yes, they're speaking truth to power, uh, kind of the, 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 set, the double side of that. Also the idea that they're leaders. I think you mentioned that in the lecture, if anyone remembers that. Um, so they're leaders, but they're leaders in different ways. They're not always, they're not the kind of the polished leaders that we think of today, those who are eloquent and all of those kinds of things. So I think about that a lot and, and I wonder who our prophets today would be because would we even notice in this noisy world and yeah. if they're not the kind of people that we <coughs> think they should be, would we listen? Mm -hmm. I, yeah. So I think the part of the lecture that uh, uh, struck me was uh, Brian talked about this idea of how prophets don't just speak, they also act, they do, and, and often they, their actions are kind of weird and, and looked <laughs> at, can even be looked at by society as crazy or insane. Uh, I think you used a couple of examples of uh, Hosea, for instance, who was called, uh, felt like he was called to marry this uh, unfaithful wife, right, and uh, as kind of a object lesson for, uh, for the people. Uh, and was it Isaiah, you said, that actually went nude at one point? Yeah, that's point? Isaiah, the nude. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I'm kind of fascinated by this idea that often the, the prophet is going to do things uh, that actually look crazy to, the, to most of the populace. And um, so Emily Dickinson has a, a great poem, which is called Much Madness is Divinest Sense. And uh, in the poem, she talks about how sometimes if your society is, is, is kind of out of kilter or out of, out of whack, the, the person that is actually doing the right thing is going to look mad, is going to look crazy, is going to look insane. And <laughs> I just find that a really fascinating idea. Um, uh, and then there's, I'll talk later about, I think there's people in literature, people in music, uh, that also kind of fill that role of the mad or the insane prophet. Uh, so I'm interested in exploring that, uh, that idea. Yeah. Do, do you all have, I mean, we read for this week in our class um, parts of Isaiah and Amos and Hosea and Micah. I wonder, do you all have, whether, whether it's in that corpus or not, Dr. Hernandez already shared Jonah as like a fascinating example. Um, do you all have any prophets that, that, that you're familiar with, like a particular passage or a particular figure that, that really stands out to you as being particularly meaningful? Yeah, so one, I mentioned earlier that Amos is probably my favorite of the prophets. Um, both the ways in which other prophetic leaders have quoted and used his material, his call for justice, uh, his own reluctance uh, to identify as a prophet, I think is pretty inspirational. Um, but there was this, I was reading this essay one time, I think when I was in graduate school, uh, by this noted uh, Old Testament uh, scholar named Walter Brueggemann, and he picks out this little verse in Amos, and it like it's a mind-blowing sort of thing, Amos 9-7, uh, and I have it in front of me, he says, um, 
this is Amos speaking uh, as the as God in this. He says, "Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites?" declares the Lord. Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt, the Philistines from Kaftor, and the Arameans from Kir? And the the implications of that, like we just read a lot of like names and places that we've never been to and people groups we don't know, but. What Amos is doing there is is saying, like, those things, Israel, that you think make you special, maybe don't make you special. Like, I, did, as, as God, haven't I just treated you like these other groups that I've entered into relationship with? And, like, you remember, like, the singular event that sets the people of Israel apart is their exodus out from, from Egypt, right? Like, they're oppressed people. They cry out to God. God says, I see you. I remember my covenant. I'm going to bring you out. I'm going to take you to the land I've shown you. And Amos seems to be indicating that, like, yeah, God has that deal with a bunch of people. So maybe you're not as special as you think you are. So, uh, you know, listen to me. And, like, that kind of blew the doors off of my, like, little mind at the time. That God can be up to a lot of stuff that breaks the mold of what our expectations are. Mm. Which is why I think that the prophetic is really important. Because the prophetic challenges us to look and see who God is by looking back at what God has been doing and then looking into our present circumstance and saying, what is God doing now that maybe defies our expectations? Where have we gotten complacent or where have we put God into a box? And that kind of blows my mind and continues to. So like Dr. Hernandez was asking, like, could we even recognize the prophetic around us with all of the noise that's going on? And I think one of the big obstacles to that is our sort of own complacency in our thinking of like what we expect God to do, where we expect God to show up, who we expect God to send us to. And what he looks like for all of us. I think that's the other part of this is I was reading, I don't know how you read your Bible, but I read the Message Bible. I love that because he's just so blunt about things. So um, in Amos, for example, he'll say things like, um, I'm sorry, I'm trying to find it. Uh, sorry. Okay, so I'll send famine through the whole country. It won't be food or water that's lacking but my word. People will drift from one end of the country to the other. People uh, roaming to the north, wander to the east. They'll go anywhere, listen to anyone, hoping to hear God's word, but they won't hear it. So I, if you get a chance to read it in the message version, it's kind of cool because it's very modern language. But what I think about all that is the piece about when he talks about, I seek, um, I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want, you know, all the, I want just you to have mercy and justice, to do mercy, mercy and justice yeah. every day. Amos 5. Amos five, 5. 5 in that zone there, yeah. Yeah, and so the thing about that is, for me, so I think of Amos as a, one of my favorite books, only two, two reasons, actually three. One, my brother's name was Amos, and so, you know, we used to <laughs> tease go. him about, and he would say, well, I have a book in the Bible, you just have your name in there, so whatever, because we were all named after biblical characters in the Bible, so that's us. I have a brother named Jonah, Jonas, Honas, oh, really? Honas wow. in Spanish, yeah, so it's, wow, that's great. yeah, and then Elizabeth, my sister, and Rebecca, so we were all of biblical names, and so that's one of the things. The second thing is that I think that he just, like, kicks butt, and can I say that? Um, you know, <laughs> sorry. He, you but know, is just not, but is, is family-friendly Family-friendly, so uh, the idea is that so he's, know. like, yeah. really honest about, this is what's going to happen to you. This is really powerful stuff and you're not listening but at the end he gives them a chance he's like there's this blessing at the end and I think that's the kind of thing about God is when we're, even when we're not doing right 
he, he points it out to us in our, if we're listening, and then he gives us a chance. There's a redemption at the end. So I think Amos is really great for that. Mm-hmm. And the third thing is, I just love the way he just talks. Like, this is what's going to happen to you. You're going to want this, you're going to want water, and there's not going to be any water. It's just so blunt. And um, there are times that I want to just say that to people. It's like, you're just, no, that's not going to happen. That's just <laughs> wrong. And instead of, instead of helping them to come to that to themselves, sometimes we, st- we talk to you. You'll probably hear professors say, well, have you thought about this? Or have you thought about that? Sometimes we just want to say, no, that's wrong. Don't do that. <laughs> but, you know, a- and Amos does that. So I think those are the reasons I really appreciate that. But the thing about mercy and justice and the way we expect God to appear, um, these, are, these were not... The prophets were all, excuse me, not all the prophets were people of high stature. I don't think any of them may have been. But he says, I, Amos says, I'm just, a, you know, I'm just a farmer. I just was told to come up here and say this. That's all I'm doing. Mm-hmm. I don't understand the theological stuff. I'm not a big, like, right. I didn't get a degree in, you know, right. in, th- in a seminary. I just am telling you what God told me. That's right. it. And so I think that's kind of powerful that God uses ordinary people to do these extraordinary things. Yeah, I'll, I'll take one of the student questions over text was just like about, you know, who gets to count in the Bible as a prophet exactly? We addressed this a little bit on Monday, but I'll, I'll recap. Like someone said, is Samuel a prophet? Wasn't Samuel a prophet? Yeah, he is. He doesn't have a book. He has a book named after him, but it's not a book where he's the author in the first person, like the way that Isaiah or Amos is, where they're the speaking voice. So sometimes you have prophets in a narrative. Samuel is a great example. Also Elijah and Elisha are prophets who don't they don't have a book named after them, first-person author, but they're prophets who act and do things. And so you have essentially those two types. But there are a lot of these named prophetic books, Amos, Isaiah, all of these. And, you know, was, was Samuel somebody of high standing? He seems to have been something of a leader. He was a judge, technically, like from the judges. Isaiah maybe was connected with the king in a way that suggests he was powerful, but Amos, maybe not so much. Micah seems to have been a farmer of some kind who talked and said things. Um, and, and we don't really know very much about a lot of the other ones. And so this is an equal opportunity office for people across a huge spectrum. And, Doc- and, female, and females as well. And females as well. Um, <laughs> Dr. Taney, do you want to get in on this in some way? Uh, I would probably just say that, that Micah passage really resonates with me. And uh, I mean, that's a really well-known one, I think, uh, the idea of acting justly and loving mercy and walking humbly with God. Mm. Uh, but the thing that strikes me about that is kind of related to what you said, Rebecca, the idea that, the prophets are blunt many yeah. times. Uh, I think the, the prophets also simplify stuff for us. Um, because, you know, religion in our time, and I guess forever, has been a really complex subject. And, um, and religious people tend to get into all sorts of discussions about worship styles and doctrine and ritual, you know, and, and what's, what's the right way to do communion or to do, you know, this and that. And then the prophets seem to be this people that come along and they just kind of cut to the chase, you know, and it's kind of like, look, here's three things that you need to do if you want to please God. Do justice, you know. There's people starving in your, in your country and you're not even paying attention to it. Mm-hmm. And you're sitting in your, your nice, you know, four-bedroom home with your, with your big screen TV and you know you're watching Netflix and, and you're drinking and, and, and just having a great time and there's people outside your door starving. You don't care about it. Mm. So just do justice, you know. Be merciful. Be humble. Uh, don't act like you're the greatest thing that God ever sent to humankind. Mm-hmm. Just be, be humble. 
And so that's what I like about Yeah, prophets. it's a super powerful passage. It makes a nice segue to a topic we now cannot avoid, and someone definitely texted about this already, and we, we'll just go there. Are there prophets in our world today? Or was this somehow confined to the biblical period? Someone texted and said, are the New Testament authors prophets? What, what happens to prophecy in the New Testament? That's something we can continue to talk about as well. But, I mean, what about just this basic question? Are there prophets today? Are, and if so, are they like biblical prophets? Is it just kind of an honorary title? Like, oh yeah, I have a favorite musician. She or he is totally a prophet. You know, like, <laughs> but it's, you know, is it like that? Do, is it just an expansive thing? Like, a prophet is anybody who just kind of helps us understand our world? Or does prophet have a more delimited type sense? Like, a prophet is someone really specific who is actually literally speaking the words of God today in a new context? Or mm-hmm. how, how would we think about this? Well, we were talking a little earlier about, I think people like Martin Luther King were prophetic. <clears throat> I actually, I don't know if any of you know or are familiar with uh, Cesar Chavez, who led the, the Farm Worker Union mark. And people immediately might say, oh, no, he was a, you know, whatever, he was a political figure. But there's actually, uh, I went to his uh, his home where he's, where he's buried in his Del- in Delphi, Delfino, I think, uh, California, and he's actually there's books there, and I and I bought a couple of them, and one is the sermons of Cesar Chavez, and he talks a lot through that from his faith, from his faith he felt called to talk about uh, and to advocate for farm workers because of their poverty and because of the oppression that was happening to them by the owners of the, of the fields, et cetera. And he talks about it from his, from his faith. And, and as a Catholic, he talks about the different verses and the different prof, uh, creeds, et cetera. And it was just really powerful for me to experience uh, what I, I know as a political person, and I grew up as a farm worker myself, our family, farm worker community. We knew him because he was helping our family, our community, but also on top of that, to now as an adult to go back and look at it from the lens of a biblical text. So for me, that, those are the kind of people, and I do think they were available today, but again, do we listen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that, um, that sometimes we superimpose uh, like a lifestyle or a job of prophet on the biblical prophets because they have a book with their name on them and we're highlighting that portion of their life. And so we say, who, you know, who has the job of being a prophet today? When, when we look at the prophets, like most of them, it was a period of time in their life for a specific season and they were called with a specific message. And so I keep going back to Amos, right? Like he was a farmer or a shepherd, right? And he was a shepherd that was called to go from his home in the southern kingdom to the northern kingdom with a specific message and then he fully expected i'm gonna go back and be like a shepherd like that's my deal and so when we i think when we want to look at prophets today uh, we might look for who are the people that are saying prophetic things and not so much like who's deriving their income from this right so when we look at somebody like martin luther king jr you know here was a guy who was groomed to be a pastor i mean he was going to take over his dad's church in atlanta and he became this prophetic voice for a whole movement and a generation and that season lasted the rest of his life when his life was cut off shortly cesar chavez is another great example dr hernandez uh, has already talked about, but here's somebody who was a farm worker and he became this voice because of this message that uh, he felt burdened to be able to, to carry and to share. So I think that we can identify the prophets of today by their speech acts. It's by what they're saying and what they're doing and how they link us back to who God is and what God's up to in the world today. And oftentimes those people are identifying themselves with the very people or they're coming out of the community of the people who are being uh, oppressed. 
And so we find profits, I think, uh, in the margins of society, not you know, in government as much. You know, you can be prophetic and be in government, of course, but I think that the people who have aspirations to fame, people who have aspirations to power, oftentimes those are not the people that we see being called out uh, to serve as prophets mm -hmm. in a prophetic sense. And I think that's exactly, I, I would add only to that, that we're, to remember the prophet is the one who calls us back to God, to his best, to repentance, to to the justice, to the mercy, to that kind of calling, because we can look at you know public preachers today or famous people today and say, oh, you know, is that a prophet? He's saying this. Well, if it tickles our ears, because the Bible talks about that, if it tickles our ears and it makes us feel good about what we're doing, and it's not linked directly to the biblical text, to back to the Bible, back to what God has called us to, I, I, that's a mistake, and I would kind of be cautious about that. Hmm. I'm going to say one more thing, Dr. Tandy. Um, what you bring up, Dr. Hernandez, uh, kind of reminds me that, and what we haven't really, we haven't gone to this place, but like there's this also this, this counter thing within the biblical narrative about false prophets, mm -hmm. right? And so these are the people who are like uh, saying, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Right. These are the people who are saying, I'm going to be a prophet and I'm going to cozy up to the king and I'm going to say what the king wants to hear. Uh, and kind of like affirm whatever policy the king wants to put down because I derive some sort of benefit out of that. And so they're using the office of prophet for personal gain uh, or for political gain. And we certainly have those today too, right? People who are claiming to speak on behalf of God, but what they're telling us is everything's going to be fine as long as we keep going in the direction we're going. Right. And prophets really are the ones that are calling us back to God, and usually that means away from how things are going right now, away from what we've gotten comfortable in. Mm -hmm. So uh, I want to I want to throw an idea out there that uh, in our culture in in the world that we live in that a lot of times as Anderson said you know prophets come from unlikely places maybe uh, and I I would suggest that our musicians our poets um, you know are often our prophets uh, in in our world uh, so I'll, I'll use an example from from my day, because that's the music, you know, I listened to in college, but uh, have you ever heard of Bob Dylan, for instance? Anybody know, uh, know Bob? <laughs> well, so, you know, Bob Dylan was this folk singer and, you know, in the, in the 1960s, and, and he, was, he came out at a time when uh, the Vietnam War was going on, where there was a lot of unrest about um, uh, materialism in society and young people were kind of marching you know and beginning to sort of rebel about what was going on in their society uh, and so Dylan writes this song called uh, the times they are a changing and I want to quote a little bit of it because I want you to listen and tell me if you hear any prophetic language in this song uh, if I had my guitar and harmonic I would play it for you which would would probably be more fun um, Anyway, so I'll just read a little bit of it. Uh, Come gather around people wherever you roam and admit that the waters around you have grown and accept it that soon you'll be drenched to the bone. Doesn't that sound a little prophetic? You know, like what, what, some, what Isaiah and some of these people say? You know, it's like, watch out. Something's, something's going to happen. There's going to be this big disaster, right? And uh, Dylan in this song even uses the word prophecy. He says, come writers and critics who prophesy with your pen and keep your eyes wide, the chance won't come again. 
and don't speak too soon because the wheel's still in spin. Um, and he, also, he uses even biblical language. He says, for the loser now will be later to win. Sounds a lot like the last shall be first, the first shall be last, right? And then he, he addresses power. Come, senators, congressmen, please heed the call. Don't stand in the doorway. Don't block up the hall. For he that gets hurt will be he who is stalled. There's a battle outside, and it's raging. It'll soon shake your windows and rattle your walls for the times they are a-changing. Uh, so I think musicians often come to us in times where we need to hear a message. Mm. And um, you can probably think of some examples of, of musicians that you listen to, right, that, that, re that you resonate with when you hear them talking about things like social injustice and uh, the need for peace, the need for love, the, 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 the end of racism, uh, these social justice issues that are st we're still dealing with that mm. the prophets talked about yeah. all the time. I wanted to, to, to bring, it, bring this issue of music and prophecy into the biblical realm in, in 2 Kings, a book we haven't read or discussed yet. There's a prophet named Elisha, and at a certain point, this is in 2 Kings chapter 3, he's asked to do some prophecy, kind of on the spot, like, hey, Elisha, help us out here. What's happening? Tell us what to do. Um, and Elisha says, um, bring me a harpist. And then while the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came on Elisha, and he said, this is what the Lord says. I will do, and then he goes on to say. So this is a bizarre moment where it's like almost like in order to kind of get in the mood he needed to be in, there needed to be a musical instrument and some kind of song going on. Yeah. So that connection there between, um, between, uh, between music and prophecy ends up being actually an important part of that particular prophetic moment with Elisha. So we don't know that the prophets were musicians as a whole, but Miriam, remember Miriam in Exodus 15, she leads the community in song and worship at the, at the Red Sea or the Reed Sea Crossing, and she is a prophet. And so again, there's music and prophecy are actually tied together in the text itself. Um, I wonder if we have any questions from the student body written on pieces of paper, anything at all? Jenna, do you, uh, do you have something to, to read out for us? Yeah, um, it was kind of touched on somewhat. Um, but this student wants to know, like, how do you determine uh, somebody who is prophetic versus somebody who's just like very influential with media and someone who, and he, they mentioned the word like false prophet too. Like how do you know whether or not they're actually being prophetic or if they're just being a false prophet and using kind of their stage to get whatever message they want out? People are like, oh yeah, that feels really good. And you've touched on that somewhat, but even with the music thing, like, oh, how do you tell whether or not someone is truly trying to bring people back to God or if they, like, is there a criteria or to determine this? Yeah, I was wondering that too, even as we talked, because I think that that line between just like someone who inspires you or elevates you, like I, I, can, I can rattle off all kinds of things in film and music and TV and just people around me that elevate me. What about this word though, like prophet, like in the biblical sense, like is that exactly it? Or if I talk on the phone with my mom and my mom just says, oh, you're all worried about X and Y and Z and you know, I've lived through this, it's gonna be okay. Is she a prophet to me in that exact moment because I needed to hear that, you know? Are our parents prophets to us, you know, in that sense? I was gonna mention that, that the Bible actually has, I, I, you know, if you wanna read about this, you can read in, in Deuteronomy 18. The Bible itself has a kind of rubric for what gets to count as prophecy and whatnot. It's hard to know how helpful it is for today because it's kind of limited. I mean, in one way, um, I mean, I'm just summarizing the text here in Deuteronomy. The author there says, look, if a prophet calls you to do to worship some other god, they're not a prophet. Or if a prophet calls you to do some kind of method to worship God that is forbidden by Israel, like for example, all this stuff, um, you know, they talk about sorcery and divination and casting spells and all this kind of stuff. It says, don't do that. 
Um, and then another thing is that if the prophet presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded or any other God, they're to be put to death. So it's actually the death penalty is prescribed for false prophets here and the stakes are very high. The question all comes back to, and I think that this was the student's question, how would you know whether the prophet was actually speaking something in God's name? Um, the world is just so noisy. Have you guys ever noticed that like a lot of people claim to speak for God? Have you ever heard, and someone texted this too, like what if you get conflicting messages? Can someone be speaking for God saying, do this, and then another person is also literally speaking for God and says, don't do this? Like, can, you know, that happens, right? Like, we see this. I don't know that there's going to be, like, one arrow that's going to get us through the mess, but do our panelists have any ideas about how we would even know? Yeah, I think that, uh, that this is where the, the tradition of Scripture, the tradition of the church is really helpful, is because uh, the, if, if it's God speaking, then we're going to hear echoes of what God has already been saying, right? So the prophets in the Old Testament, prophets today, are not making new stuff up for God, but there is a sense of resonance with, yeah, that is what God's about, even if my church has drifted, even if my faith has drifted, even if my culture has drifted, the prophet is calling us back to things and ideas that have been consistent throughout the biblical uh, story, throughout uh, Christian history. So prophets don't get to innovate a whole lot. Right? Their innovation tends to be in the means of communication that they use, but not really in their message. Now, Dr. Tandy talked about how they distill it down. Like they bring us back to simplicity, and they often do shocking things to help us like see that. And so I, I think that that's sort of part of the rubric there is that there, there's, there's got to be a consistency with what God has already said in the prophetic message. Well, let me ask you uh, back to that, uh, Anderson. Is, is it really... I guess I wonder about that as well, thinking about today, is it okay that a prophet sort of lets, lets us do some bad things to get to a good end? And I think that is sort of a message we're hearing, and I, I can't, I don't know what to do with that. I, I guess I'm wondering about what you think. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, it depends on what kind of bad things that we're talking about, but like who benefits from those bad things, right? right? Like, is this an indulgence in something sinful for being edgy, right? Mm -hmm. Or uh, does indulging in this bad thing actually critique uh, people who are in power or critique the ways in which we as people mm -hmm. of faith have drifted or gotten away mm -hmm. from the message of God? Mm -hmm. And then there's the whole question that we probably don't have time to, but like, can God use people who are not, you know, followers of God right. to be prophetic, mm -hmm. right? Uh, so like, what does it look like? And it, I mean, the short yeah. answer is, I think, yes. And I think yes, we see that in the I Bible, agree. you know? Yeah, I mean, God the example would be, animals, yeah, right? it would be, well, you're right. And in that story, in the book of Numbers, we didn't read or discuss this story, but there's a character named Balaam, who's yeah. like some, you know, kind of like religious functionary from another country, worships different gods. And he's asked to give some kind of like curse upon Israel. And he ends up like speaking this wonderful poem from God to Israel about how they're going to succeed. Clearly in that moment, he is speaking God's words. And even his donkey that he rides ends up talking at one point, talking animals in the Bible, and speaking, <laughs> speaking truth in a situation. So that's, it's not like the norm practice, but it is a very obvious example there in that yeah, passage. That's good. That's, yeah. I'm struck too by, you know, and, and we're kind of running to the end of our time here, but I, I want to ask this question. I mean, I know it's hard to treat these things in, in a quick way, but like take Isaiah chapter five. This, is, this was part of our reading for the week. Um, in Isaiah 5.18, there's this, there's this very stark prophecy about, about land and houses. And he says something like, Woe to you who build houses, these huge houses that crowd everyone out in the land. 
woe to you who add field unto field until there's nothing left. And Micah as a farmer was like really big into this kind of land language. Mm-hmm. And when I read that personally, it's like such, it's such strong language. Like I just, I struggle, like how am I supposed to apply that to my life? Mm-hmm. Because like I have a house. If you came to my house, you'd be like, wow, you have a nice house. Like, and if, and if someone said, does he need to have that house? Is that house bigger than he really needs? Is he crowding someone else out who maybe doesn't have comfort, the comfort of a home? I could look at myself and be like, yeah, maybe I do. And I could come up with like, kind of like halfway solutions like, well, maybe I should just be more hospitable sometimes. But I wonder to myself, like, is that really what Isaiah would have said? Or would Isaiah have like literally screamed in my face? You know, like, would these prophets have essentially hated me, hated our kind of middle-class society, Mm -hmm. our church respectability, all of that kind of stuff. And so, I don't know, what do you do when you read the prophets and it's like, just briefly here, 60 seconds. What do you do when you read the prophets and it's just like so challenging? Is it, how do you react? Well, I, I, I actually spent some time working in a Mennonite school uh, in Indiana and a Goshen College. And one of the things that was really interesting about that is that culture is all about living simply so that others can simply live. Mm-hmm. And they do that like to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. They do that with food. Um, there's cookbooks. There's all kinds of kids are raised up to actually work in, in um, you know, uh, uh, develop, you know, canning food, all this stuff. And then so they're always about recycling and about the environment and about the earth. And I just thought about that. That helped me to really change and think through all that I own. And my thing now is, do I really need to buy this thing? And if so, what am I giving up? Hmm. And so it's always this trade-off. And again, I don't know that that is answering your question exactly, but it's the idea of how do we just in our own lives begin to... Um, to pare down, to begin, and you're probably thinking, we are pared down, we live in the dorm. I get that, <laughs> but, you know, and you have crates, I know. But the thing is, thinking through, how do we then begin to, to live in the future, thinking about that? And so I would worry about that. The other part about it is, if you think about gentrification, we hear a lot about that. That, to me, is an issue. I used to work in Northeast Portland, out by the airport, very poor area, lots and lots of um, uh, of poor community members, and you'll see the, uh, the, the oversaturation of, of uh, environmental factors there, lead and uh, you know, lead in the in the housing and the paint and kids getting all this lead stuff in their bodies. There's a lot of stuff like that. That if you think about the unfairness of that, because what they would do is some companies is they sell off uh, their EPA stuff and then they'll be able to get you know, clean, they'll be able to do more bad stuff in the environment and then it gets credited because they they paid it off in another part of the state. It's complicated, I'm not explaining it very well. The point is that it ends up in one area. So those are the kinds of things we need to be looking at. That's a justice issue. When I started looking at that and thinking about that as a justice issue, it makes a difference in the way I live, Mm. in the way I vote, in the way I uh, use my resources. Yeah, that's great. One one last very quick comment. Yep, very, very quickly. I think that, uh, yes, Isaiah would probably have a problem with uh, our view towards home ownership, but it's probably for the same reason that he was critiquing uh, the people of his time as well, is because there was a sense of entitlement and, like, we deserve this. And what Isaiah was calling us back to and still calls us to today is, like, no, you don't. Like, God said, this is my land that I'm bringing you into. It is a gift for you to steward. You don't deserve it at all. And I think that that same call mm. is true for us yeah. today. So whatever we kind of circumscribe as the American dream, like that maybe isn't God's dream. And we have to submit our dreams to God and say, how do we steward these privileges well, but we don't deserve any of that stuff. Students, you may live in the dorms now, but you're not always going to. And these issues are going to become relevant in your lives in serious ways. Please join me in thanking this panel.
Really appreciate it.